turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, well, he's given up his office. Today we're going to talk with John Fortmeyer. We'll catch up with him to find out the latest with regard to Christian News Northwest. Uh, how that is faring in the online edition and what the future looks like as the pandemic shelter-in-place order remains in place. We'll also hear a classic interview with Dr. Andy Walsh, the book Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables from Modern Science. That's coming up uh, later this hour as well. And, of course, we'll wind our way through the latest news regarding uh, COVID-19 and other issues as they relate to what's going on across the country. Well, we learned earlier today that SpaceX um, and NASA that was set for an historic astronaut launch today has been scrapped, but rescheduled for Saturday at 12.22 Pacific time. No launch today. Apparently, weather was uh, at the core of that issue. Thunderstorms had uh, threatened to delay the launch earlier today as two astronauts aboard SpaceX uh, rocket waited for liftoff on this historic making flight. In fact, they were on the rocket at the time it was scrapped. It's uh, seen as a giant leap forward for the uh, business of commercial space travel. The flight would mark the first time a private company sent humans into orbit. It would also be the first time in nearly a decade that the United States launched astronauts into orbit from U.S. soil. Ever since the space shuttle was uh, retired in 2011, NASA has relied on Russian spaceships launched from Kazakhstan to take U.S. astronauts to and from the space station. But that has, as I've mentioned, been scrapped until Saturday, weather permitting. So that's kind of the top news story of the day. In other news, House Republicans filed a lawsuit Tuesday against Speaker Nancy Pelosi seeking to block a system of proxy voting put in place during the coronavirus pandemic on the grounds that it is unconstitutional. The Speaker's plan would allow House members to vote on another person's behalf if they are not able to be physically present at the Capitol. It's an unprecedented exception for an unparalleled health crisis. At least 59 Democrats have submitted letters to the House Clerk's Office to authorize their vote to be cast by proxy. Meanwhile, GOP lawmakers have said that they will be in the Capitol to cast their votes. Not a single Republican supported the measure as it passed earlier this month, arguing the Constitution requires a quorum or a majority of lawmakers to be physically present in order to vote on a measure, thus concluding the proxy system is unconstitutional. Republicans also worry the system would concentrate too much power in the hands of only a few members. Well, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he called the new voting rules a dereliction of duty as elected officials and argued a small number of members dictating the business of the whole House while the people's voice is diluted would set a dangerous precedent. And chaos broke out in Minneapolis on Tuesday night as protesters took to the streets to demand action after the death of a black man in police custody a day earlier. George Floyd, 46, died Monday night, and video later emerged showing the man on the ground with a police officer pressing his knee against his uh, Floyd's neck while he was handcuffed for at least five minutes. 
Officers had responded to a call from a grocery store that claimed Floyd had allegedly tried to make purchases with a forged check. Floyd's death sparked new tensions between police and the black community. Police on Tuesday night, they fired rubber bullets, tear gas, and stun grenades on some protesters. The protest started peacefully, but the situation deteriorated, and some demonstrators were seen breaking windows of police cars and hurling rocks. We're here to let you know that this cannot and will not be tolerated. There will be severe consequence if they continue to kill us. This will not go on another day, one protester said, according to local media. The officers involved have been fired, but charges have not yet been issued uh, for the death of this man in their custody. Well, as I mentioned, SpaceX was making its final preparations today. Demo 2 mission to launch NASA astronauts from the U.S. soil for the first time since 2011. A SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket and Crew Dragon spacecraft would transport these uh, astronauts, Doug Hurley and Ben Benkin, uh, to the International Space Station on the historic mission. NASA Administrator Jim Bridestein said he texted the two astronauts on Monday and told them, if you want me to stop this thing for any reason, say so. I will stop it in a heartbeat if you want me to. They both came back and they said, we're go for launch. Now, that has since been postponed, and we're expecting that uh, will happen on Saturday at about 1221 Pacific time. Well, Democrats stressed as are stressed rather as the economy threatens to recover, which is sort of a peculiar position to be in. But it is an election year. So peculiar is the word of the uh, next several months. Uh, Obama economist Jason Furman told Democrats the economy could see the best economic data in the history of this country. That's a quote. You think that would be viewed favorably by all. But from the story, Furman's uh, counterintuitive pitch uh, was has caused Uh, Some Democrats, especially Obama alumni around Washington, to panic. This is my big worry, said former Obama White House official, who's still close to the former president. Asked about the level of concern among top party officials, he said it's high, 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 high. Again, that's a quote. People are committing suicide over this, and Democrats are worried it will stop. Now, again, so peculiar, you're lamenting the fact that the economy might come uh, rushing back. Uh, The Wall Street Journal uh, points out that Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats know what they want, keep the economy locked down for as long as the virus exists and as appropriate as much um, uh, taxpayer money as possible to replace the lost private incomes. Mrs. Pelosi's House bill promises another $3 trillion for her various constituencies on top of the $2.7 trillion or so Congress has already spent on the pandemic. The goal is income redistribution, not economic growth. Again, from the Wall Street Journal. Well, MSNBC um, mocked uh, a man uh, during a story who was not wearing a mask. The MSNBC man on the street uh, uh, complained that people aren't wearing masks and focused on one in particular who then pointed out live on the air that half of the MSNBC television crew weren't wearing masks either. Uh, Same moment from the POV of the uh, guy who uh, busted them was a rather laughable moment. Meanwhile, as the total U.S. death toll tops 100,000, the daily deaths are the lowest since March. The Department of um, Justice has dropped the investigation into three U.S. senators for questionable stock trades. Senator Burr is still under investigation from Kelly Loeffler. Uh, Today's uh, clear exoneration affirms what I've uh, said all along. I did nothing wrong. This was a politically motivated attack promoted by the fake news media. She said in response to the now dropped charges and she added her political opponents. I'm continuing to focus my full attention on results 
for Georgia. Nikki Haley points out, happy to see vindication for uh, Kelly Loeffler. She handled the inquiry with complete transparency, proud of how she continues to serve the people of Georgia honorably. Well, Mark Beeson says it's time to end the lockdown, and he argues in a piece in the Washington Post, the objective of the lockdown was never to stop every American from getting COVID-19, which is impossible. It was to buy time to learn about the virus and prevent our health care system from being overwhelmed. We've accomplished those goals. Again, time to end the lockdown, he argues. Uh, the California governor has agreed to allow churches to meet at 25% capacity, the Daily Caller reports. But then came this. The pace at which the state has made these modifications is concerning. Santa Clara Public Health Officer Sarah Cody told the County Board of Supervisors at their Tuesday afternoon meeting, noting that other states have exercised more caution, including New Jersey, which limited such gatherings to 25 people, and New York, where no more than 10 people are allowed. Cody stressed that the board uh, at least has a full incubation period of 14 days and preferably 21 is needed to effectively gauge the impact of each step of the reopening process. And Victor Davis Hanson points out in a very um, stunning piece, uh, Emeritus Barack Obama now and then ventures out to go through the motions of an um, enfeebled defense for what is becoming an increasingly discredited administration. But his heart is not in it. His mind is elsewhere. His cause is no longer social activism and community organizing, if it ever was. But um, Uh, lucre and the perceived well-earned good life. The arc of his moralizing universe is long, but for the anointed like him, it apparently bends toward the just desserts of riches and material bounty. Sort of an indictment on the president's, the former president's um, exit from the political world. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Later on the show, we're going to talk with John Fortmeyer. He's the publisher of Christian News Northwest. We'll talk about the June issue, which once again is online. But what does that mean for the paper moving forward? John Fortmeyer will join us in the second hour of today's program. Coming up in the next couple of segments, we'll talk with uh, Andy Walsh. Uh, Dr. Walsh is the author of Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables from Modern Science. That classic interview will air in just a few minutes, so hope you'll stay with us. Amy Swearer, who's been an activist in the Me Too movement, says, believe women meant what we thought it meant. We're being gaslighted, she says, and we have the receipts to prove it. And then she does just that. She proves it. Well, young female athletes in Idaho have stood up to the ACLU. The ACLU wants males to be able to compete against females, and that battle continues, as uh, we all well know. Well, U.S. equity markets surged to their best levels in months. The states continued to reopen, and traders returned to the New York Stock Exchange for the first time since shutting down on March the 23rd to show the spread of to slow the spread rather of COVID-19. That was on Tuesday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rallied more than 600 points on that day, or 2.45 percent, in the opening minutes of trading. While the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite were higher by 2.20 percent and 1.84 percent, respectively. At least five states are taking steps to ease lockdowns on Tuesday, with Michigan allowing retail businesses to open by appointment and Arkansas letting freestanding bars unlock their doors. This afternoon's study out of Singapore suggests COVID-19 patients are not infectious 11 days after getting sick. In support of their findings, researchers noted that a separate study out of Germany found the degree of viral shedding was very high in the first week of symptoms. Meanwhile, 
There's some new optimism in the treatment of coronavirus. The results from a National Institutes of Health clinic trial uh, support the use of the antiviral drug remdesivir in treating coronavirus after data pointed to improved recovery time for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Though remdesivir has not received formal approval, hospitals nationwide have administered the drug to some critically ill coronavirus patients after a federal shipment was delivered earlier this month. And farmers in North Carolina are being forced to euthanize 1.5 million chickens following outbreaks of the novel coronavirus at meat processing plants across the state, an official has revealed, and a mysterious inflammatory syndrome tied to COVID-19 that's been reported in children is now also turning up in young adults in their early 20s, according to new reports. And there are several other developments worth mentioning. Some Democrats reportedly worry that an explosive economic recovery in the fall could revive the president's lagging political fortunes and boost his chance of re-election. Former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, in an interview with Fox and Friends on Tuesday, alleged that Democrats are willing to crush the economy if it leads to a Trump defeat in November. And Congress will have to give serious consideration to an additional financial package aimed at helping struggling transportation companies and mass transit systems Former Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood said uh, yesterday, another potential COVID-19 vaccine candidate has started clinical trials as biotech company, no, let's see, Novavax, uh, began to inject volunteers in Australia this week. And the echoes of 9-11 ring louder than ever for Ed Donnelly amid the coronavirus pandemic. Donnelly is the brother of fallen New York firefighter Lieutenant Kevin Donnelly. And he compares the bravery of today's coronavirus frontline responders to those on 9-11. Mitch Daniels, the former Republican governor of Indiana and current president of Purdue University, wrote in a Washington Post op-ed on Tuesday morning that failing to reopen the university for students this fall would be an unacceptable breach of duty. We'll see what happens there. Well, the genetic code found in sewage sludge could be a leading indicator of COVID-19 outbreaks. Anticipating the presence of the virus by seven days and hospital admissions by three days, a new study from researchers at Yale University says. I wouldn't want to engage in that uh, study, but nonetheless, there are those who are willing to do so. They're appreciated. The research, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, determined that concentrations of SARS-CoV-2-RNA is sewage sludge from the New Haven, Connecticut wastewater treatment facility could be used to model the number of COVID-19 cases in the area. Meanwhile, in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo handling the coronavirus outbreak in nursing homes is falling under further scrutiny. Cuomo, who signed legislation granting hospital and nursing home executives immunity from lawsuits related to the novel coronavirus last month, previously received a big money boost from a powerful healthcare industry group. According to a new report, the New York governor is set to meet with President Trump on Wednesday in D.C., the president still wants a 4th of July celebration to take place in the nation's capital, despite pleas from Democratic lawmakers to cancel it due to the coronavirus pandemic. The White House announced that the event will still, um, was still on after members of the House and Senate from Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., led by Representative Don Beyer, asked the administration to immediately suspend any plan of such an event in a letter to the Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Secretary of the Interior David Bernhard. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee sent a letter to Committee Chairman Representative Carolyn Maloney on Wednesday, threatening to boycott briefings held by the committee during the coronavirus pandemic. The letter says the briefings um, harm minority rights and do not comply with the framework for remote business set up by the House. Republicans in their letter also panned the, the briefings as quasi-hearings and fake hearings.
Well, the majority of small businesses in the U.S. are optimistic about reopening amid the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new study. Nearly three quarters of businesses, or 74 percent, expect to return to business as usual within six months of coronavirus restrictions being lifted. And uh, the Connected Commerce uh, Council said on Wednesday, that may be encouraging. And almost half of American adults delayed or skipped medical care amid the coronavirus pandemic, according to data released on Wednesday by the Kaiser Family Foundation Health Tracking Poll. Of the 48 percent of adults who skipped medical care, 11 percent reported a worsening in their or family member's condition, according to the data. And several other developments A potential coronavirus vaccine developed in China appeared safe and able to generate an immune response after an early trial in more than 100 people, according to a new study. The vaccine, called AD5-NCOV, is being developed by the Chinese company CanSino Biologics and was one of the first coronavirus vaccines to enter early human trials back in March. Officials for Walt Disney World Resort They've announced July 11th as a tentative reopen date for select areas of the Florida theme park. Masks will be required. New technology can detect an antivirus antibody in just 20 minutes, according to researchers in Japan. If a suitable um, region is developed, uh, they say that the uh, tech could be used to detect antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And hundreds of salons in New Jersey plan to reopen on the 1st of June, despite the governor's executive order, because their businesses are at a breaking point, salon owners said uh, in national interviews earlier in the day. Los Angeles officials fed up with locals tossing their unwanted masks and gloves on the ground during the coronavirus outbreak, reportedly are asking the city's Bureau of Sanitation and Attorney's Office to find new ways to crack down on offenders, ranging from increased uh, penalties to expanded enforcement. So don't throw your masks to the ground, they're saying. Well, on this day in history, 1995, actor Christopher Reeve, best known for his portrayal as Superman, is left paralyzed after he is thrown from his horse during a jumping event in Charlottesville, Virginia. On this day in history, 1931, two Swiss balloonists become the first humans to reach the stratosphere, rising 53,171 feet. Did I mention they were in a balloon, or at least on one? 1933, Walt Disney's Academy Award-winning animated short, The Three Little Pigs, is first released. On this day in history, 1941, the British Royal Navy sinks the German battleship Bismarck off France with a loss of 2,000 lives. Three days after the Bismarck um, sank the HMS Hood with a loss of more than 1,400 lives. Amid rising world tensions, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt proclaims an unlimited national emergency during a radio address from the White House. And a U.N. tribunal indicts uh, Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic for crimes against humanity, all on this day in history. Coming up, we're going to hear a classic interview with uh, Andy Walsh. Dr. Walsh is the author of Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables from Modern Science. Uh, We'll get to that in a few moments, but I do want to mention that this Friday, a global live stream memorial service is going to honor the life of Christian evangelist and apologist Ravi Zacharias, who died on May the 19th after a brief battle with cancer. He launched a global team of nearly 100 Christian scholars and authors who continue to speak, resource and train, and address the questions of millions around the world. We hope you'll join us for the celebration of Robbie's life and the legacy live stream on YouTube and Facebook at Robbie Zacharias International Ministries this Friday, May the 29th at 8 o'clock a.m. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Faith Across the Multiverse. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest says that science can help us know God. And while we know the heavens declare the glory of God, few people actually give thought to just how science and the Bible intertwine. Even the Apostle Paul says God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. My next guest, Dr. Andy Walsh, holds a PhD in molecular biology and immunology and is the author of Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables of Modern Science. He looks at many of the same questions biblical characters ask that are relevant to today. Solomon, for example, wondered why there is so much evil in the world. Elijah suggests an empirical test to prove God is real. Gideon begged for a sign from God, and it goes on and on from there. Well, it's a fascinating uh, book for people who want to think deeply and see how science reveals, as Scripture suggests, the glory of God. Dr. Andy Walsh completed his postdoctoral fellowship at Carnegie Mellon University in computational biology. He earned his PhD in molecular biology and immunology from Bloomberg School of Public Health at St. Johns Hopkins, or rather at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he serves as a science writer for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's Emerging Scholars blog, and his writing can be found on the Pathos Network and in the Behemoth, a Christianity Today publication. Today, he joins us to talk about his book, Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables from Modern Science. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, learning a little bit about your background explains perhaps uh, why you undertook this subject, but maybe we can begin there. What inspired you to take on uh, the subject of how faith uh, and the multiverse can help us better understand uh, who God is over several different disciplines? Sure. So, you know, I've always been interested in science, and I've uh, been a part of the church for most of my life, so it's been two pretty constant themes. Um, but it was in grad school, um, in a, participating in Bible study uh, through university, where I um, came across the idea that uh, something I had just learned in a math class about probability theory might help us to understand uh, the passage in the Bible that we were talking about in our Bible study, uh, thinking about the return of Jesus and how likely it is to happen at any given moment. And when I brought up this idea uh, from probability theory, Another math student in the class, uh, or in the Bible study group, rather, uh, said, oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me too. And so we kind of got talking about how, you know, the thing that we've been studying helped us to, to understand a question about the Bible that, that had never really made sense to us before. Hmm. Uh, and so after that, that kind of got me excited and interested, and I started paying attention a little bit more to other ways in which the things that I was learning uh, from science, the language that I was learning from science, and those concepts behind it, uh, could help me to think about what I was reading in the Bible a little bit differently. Now, when you mentioned mathematics, uh, I'm guessing half the people in our listening audience winced just a bit. It can be intimidating and overwhelming because we think about being in middle school and high school and how difficult mathematics uh, may have been. Um, tell us how this book can relate to the average follower of Jesus and helping us better understand, first of all, have a perhaps a higher regard for the role that science can play in helping us understand uh, who God is, uh, but also that we can uh, grasp some of the concepts that you uh, focus on in your book, Faith Across the Multiverse. Sure. So you're right, a lot of people have anxiety about math, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that our brains aren't naturally wired to do arithmetic uh, very easily. So the, the hard computations, lots of multiplication, long division, all of that isn't something that you know comes naturally to us. You have to learn through a lot of hard practice, and for some folks it, it may never come to be particularly uh, fluid. 
but that's not really what we're talking about mm-hmm. in the book. The book doesn't require anybody to actually do any long division or do any <laughs> kind of computation. Um, instead, we're talking about ideas from math and how those, how those ideas and the language that we use to talk about those ideas from math uh, can help us to talk about theology. So things like uh, the butterfly effect from chaos theory in uh, mathematics, which is something that I think a lot of people might have encountered, may not even realize that it's something from uh, a math discipline, uh, but this idea that you know, if a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world, it changes whether or not it's going to rain in another part of the world, um, <clears throat> and that uh, the math that goes along with that uh, is something that I developed uh, as a way to talk about God's grace, um, and so things like that. Where uh, again, it's, it's concepts rather than asking people to, to do any kind of computation mm-hmm. or calculation. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about early on is this notion of science. In the 20th century, science became the enemy of religion, for lack of a better word, for the, and for the sake of our discussion. And so a lot of people just assume anything that falls in the category of science is a natural enemy of faith. What you are suggesting in the book, however, is that science has helped you think more clearly about who God is, and you help your readers to recognize the value of what he has created and left for us. Uh, to better understand him as well. Yeah, so, you know, that's a, a popular concept of, of how science and, and religion or Christianity have been getting along in the, in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, in fact, there, you know, there's a long history of, of faithful Christian believers in a variety of sciences, also in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, and so, you know, there have always been plenty of people who uh, have, see, have seen the two things to go together, and my hope is just that uh, this may bring some of the, the discipline of science, the language of science that is familiar to the scientists and the folks who have studied in those areas, uh, to be a little more familiar to uh, everybody else through uh, connecting it to the Bible and also through connecting it to from, uh, popular stories as well. Now, Faith Across the Multiverse looks at God from four distinct categories, the language of mathematics we've already mentioned, but also the language of physics, the language of biology, and the language of computer science. Talk to us a little bit about your desire to introduce readers to God and how science in these four disciplines in particular can help us do that. Sure. So I chose uh, those particular parts of science mostly because they were the ones I was most familiar with and Mm -hmm. most comfortable talking about. And I think that they can help us explore different uh, features of God and, and our Christian beliefs. So in math, I talk a little bit about some of the more uh, abstract ideas, like what is the nature of God and what is the nature of God's grace, and so forth. And then in the uh, in the section on physics, we talk about Jesus, who is the you know, physical incarnation of God as a human. And so you know, now we're starting to take some of that those abstract ideas from the math and putting them in context of the real physical world and how those two things relate. Um, so, and all of that comes to a head in the person of Jesus in, in Scripture. So we talk about uh, you know, who Jesus is, how we relate to him, and what his nature is as, as the incarnation of God in human form. Uh, and then we move into biology. Biology is all about you know, how organisms function and how all their various parts work together. And so that's a section that I use to explore how the church can function and how the different parts of the church, the different people in the church, can uh, fully realize their mission and their calling as the body of Christ. And then the computer science section, talk about, um, so computer science is a lot about taking uh, tasks, figuring how to do something, how to do it well, and do it repeatably. 
And so taking uh, some ideas from computer science and talking about, okay, so how is it that we are to live our lives? What are we practically meant to do uh, as we seek to follow after Jesus? Now, you write that your belief in God is informed by historical corroboration of the Bible. You've given us four scientific disciplines. Can you give us an example of uh, how historical corroboration of the Bible has helped you, helped your belief in God and perhaps a, a better understanding of who he is? All right, so, you know, there's various, uh, you know, validations of different parts of the gospel, different uh, elements, uh, his- historical events that are recorded there in the life of Jesus that we found other archaeological evidence for or documentary evidence for. Um, actually, one of the things that I think is, is most interesting uh, for folks who maybe are focused on science and things that they can observe in the moment is just the historical reality that the Christian church uh, meets to worship on Sundays uh, and yet has this historical tradition coming out of a, a, the Jewish religious tradition that meets to worship on Saturdays. And you know, how do we explain that? Well, one way that we explain that in the Christian tradition is that people had an encounter with the, the man of Jesus, that he died and that he rose again, and that we celebrate that resurrection uh, uh, by observing the Sabbath on Sunday. And so that's just a, a historical fact that we can observe in the present day. I go to church on Sunday. Lots of other folks go to church on Sunday. Well, how do we explain that fact of the world uh, that we currently live in? Uh, and the, the story of the Bible helps to uh, corroborate that or or that uh, explain that fact that we see today. We're talking about the book Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables from Modern Science, written by uh, Dr. Andy Walsh. It really is a fascinating look at uh, four disciplines in science that, as you described earlier, you're most familiar with, the language of mathematics, the language of physics, the language of biology, and the language of computer science. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Andy Walsh. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship at Carnegie Mellon University in computational biology, earned his Ph.D. in molecular microbiology and immunology from Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. He serves as science writer for InterVarsity Christian Fellowships, Emerging Scholars blog, and his uh, writing can be also found, can also be found, better way to put that, on the uh, Pathos uh, Network work and in behemoth a christianity today publication you point out in one of the parables that jesus used the parable of the sower that he draws uh, illustrations from botany animal husbandry microbiology and that other biblical illustrations explore etymology um, metallurgy and um, astronomy so i suppose we shouldn't be surprised uh, by a book like yours that draws our attention to these uh, different sciences that reveal something uh, about who God is and helps us better understand him. You say the work of faith is to discern the meaning of what we observe in the world around us. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, why that's the case. One of the things to talk about, uh, that comes from one of the earlier chapters in the book that talks about um, communication and, and information theory, which is a discipline in mathematics. And information theory uh, talks about how we can quantify information how so we can figure out how uh, how many cell towers we need or how many phone lines we need to facilitate internet communications and cell phone communications and so forth. So that helps us to measure or quantify how much information you're dealing with. But what information theory can't tell us is what any of that information means. Uh, and in fact, you know, to put any kind of meaning into information or communication requires some sort of relationship. The folks on both ends of the communication have to agree on what that meaning is. 
Uh, and so I see uh, one way to think about our Christian faith is agreeing with God that we want to find some common meaning to, in life and in his creation and in his word um, with him. We want to find the meaning that he is trying to communicate to us, and so we want to agree with God on that common meaning. Uh, and so part of our act of faith and our exploring what that uh, faith really looks like in our lives is then trying to understand through uh, the lens of Scripture and through the lens of uh, Christian tradition what, uh, what's going on in the world around us and how to understand it and what it, all, what it all really means, what the ultimate significance of it might be. Who would you say is your um, is your target audience in writing about these uh, these four sciences? Sure. So, you know, I, I'm hoping that the book will appeal not just to folks who uh, are really invested in studying those sciences, who uh, who are in maybe scientific careers, but also folks who are fans of science fiction and other kinds of sort of more nerdy pop culture that are familiar with science or things that are sort of science adjacent. Uh, might be familiar with some of the terms that, that come up in science, um, and are interested then in learning more both about the science and about the Bible and seeing how those two might go together. Well, in fact, you uh, make quite a few references. Uh, I was a little intimidated because you knew a whole lot more about uh, pop culture and um, uh, like Gotham City and Batman and some of these uh, these figures and somehow made them relevant and helped us to better understand some of the subjects that might otherwise have been certainly over my head, maybe not everyone else's. In your chapter, this, the part on the language of physics, you write about uh, entropy, uh, the many faces of entropy and its its principle. What can we learn about God from um, from the laws relating to entropy? Sure. So <clears throat> entropy uh, is the idea uh, from physics that uh, the universe, well, uh, entropy is a measure of how uh, energy is transformed and how uh, useful energy is, uh, the available energy in the system, how much usefulness we can get out of it. Um, and there's a you know, rule in physics or a law in physics that the universe is tending towards uh, using up its energy and, and leaving it all in a, in a useless state um, is sort of the tendency of, of all physical processes. And so one way to, another way to think about uh, entropy and usefulness is that it provides, uh, actually provides a context in which life can, can exist. So as long as um, energy is in a low entropy state, in a useful state, then that's what's necessary for, for life to go on. And uh, in our physical experience, the sun is sort of our ultimate source for all that useful energy. The sun, because it is a very hot spot in the sky, and because it's a very localized spot in the sky, not all around us, but just in one fixed point, um, that's what makes that uh, energy that we get from the sun a low entropy energy that's useful for all of our life processes to go on. So we can kind of think of that as being a stand-in for God, that God is sort of the ultimate a uh, useful source of energy, the low, low entropy source of energy that makes our lives possible. Um, and that, you know, in the act of uh, becoming human, in the act of dying on the cross, uh, God essentially gave up some of that uh, low entropy state of himself so that the rest of us could live. This is the, the sun is sort of continually giving up its low entropy state uh, so that uh, life around in, in the physical world can can persist. So that's one way to think about um, sort of that, that physics and how we relate to God and how God is uh, providing life for us. And then also 
uh, illustrates how we can think about how to uh, be that for other people as well, that we can uh, make sure that we are providing a useful source of energy to those around us and sort of uh, balancing out things so that other folks can live and flourish and that we're not just storing up all of the useful energy for ourselves. Now, the part of the book I think most of us will relate to perhaps most easily is the language of biology. We know that we are, as described in Scripture, fearfully and wonderfully made. But the detail, uh, the genome made flesh, as you uh, call that first uh, chapter in that segment, um, helps us better understand in uh, perhaps... um, more significant ways how um, fearfully and wonderfully we are made and what that tells us about the nature of the God we worship. Yeah, so that's actually building on uh, one of these uh, analogies in Scripture that I, that I referenced and that you brought up earlier, that mm-hmm. you know, Scripture is full, already full of the language of, of science of, the, of its time. And, you know, Paul uses the illustration of the body and the different parts of the body as different parts of the Church. And so I thought we could explore that a little bit further in the light of modern cell biology, and thinking about each person in the church as an individual cell. Um, and each cell in our bodies has an entire copy of our human genome. But at any given time, uh, it's not expressing all of that genome. It's only expressing certain parts of it, depending on the kind of cell that it is, the history of, it, of that cell and its uh, an- ancestor cells. Um, and the environment that it finds itself in, what sorts of cues it's getting from the cells around it currently and from things outside the body. Uh, and so in that same way, we can think about, well, each one of us uh, has the, the Word of God in our lives. Each one of us has the entire Bible, uh, hopefully has access to that uh, as we participate in our church. But we're not all necessarily expressing the entire Bible all at once at any given moment. But it's really the whole church working together over time that expresses that whole genome of the church, which is the Bible or the Word of God. Now, we're almost out of time, but I want you to comment on the uh, part of the, the book, the language of computer science. That may be a, a bit more challenging for most of us. We think of the other sections as clearly the hand of God being expressed in his creation. Computer science, it's more difficult to see perhaps that relation. Talk a bit about how computer science helps reveal the glory of God. Yeah, so computer science... As a discipline, you know, there's a couple of different ways to think about it, but one of them is to think about it in terms of the algorithms that we write for computers, which is really just a fancy word for what are the processes or steps that we take to accomplish a particular task. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even before we had computers, we had to have, we had to accomplish certain tasks, and we even had algorithms, even if we didn't necessarily call them that. And so, you know, there are certain uh, steps that we take to accomplish various tasks, and even the Bible lays out um, different algorithms, you know, for example, the, the different sacrificial steps in the Old Testament. Those are, you know, step-by-step process for how to relate to God, how to restore relationship with God when it's been broken, uh, how to restore fellowship within the community when it's been broken. And so, we, you know, we all have these procedures that we follow, and computer science is just a way to think a little bit more uh, systematically about mm-hmm. them and to organize them into some more general principles. That's what I talk about in in those chapters of the book is getting at some of those underlying principles and how we can use those to think about uh, our practices in the Christian life of, uh, you know, fellowship, um, 
the spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and praying and, and those sorts of things. Well, this is really a fascinating book, and you've helped me to think about faith and science in ways that had not occurred to me. I would encourage those who are scientifically inclined and others who simply want to have a deeper faith and appreciate uh, those disciplines, the sciences around us, uh, and how they communicate the glory of God. Great book, Faith Across the Multiverse, Parables from Modern Science. Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Uh, By the way, the book is uh, published by Hendrickson Publishers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, um, we're all sheltering in place. That means events all across the uh, state of Oregon and Southwest Washington have been canceled. Events where I would typically run into John Fortmeyer because he is literally everywhere covering for Christian News Northwest events that are of interest to the Christian community. He is the publisher. And as you uh, probably know by now, the uh, paper edition of Christian News Northwest has not been available since all of us were called upon to shelter in place in response to this pandemic. Well, the June issue of Christian News Northwest is now available online, but I wanted to check in Uh, with John to find out how things are going and not only how they're moving now, but what the future might look like for Christian News Northwest. So, John Fortmeyer, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Georgina. It's awfully nice of you to check back in and and see how we're doing. I mean, all of us during this crazy time, it's, uh, it's good to check in with each other and see how things are holding up. Yeah. You know, there are certain things that I just come to expect. I'm going to see John Fortmeyer, you know, a dozen times <laughs> in the course of a year at various events. Uh, and I'm going to read Christian News Northwest when it's dropped off at the radio station. Well, neither of those things have been the case in the last couple of months. I'm so grateful that uh, Christian News Northwest is available online. It's not the same, but you provide the same great relevant and timely information. Tell us a little bit about the online Edition, and then I'd like to talk to you about the future of Christian News Northwest. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you're right; it's not the same, uh, and uh, I mean, at least from my perspective, Georgine, because uh, and I think I mentioned this before when we chatted. Uh, I, I literally have ink and newsprint in my veins, and <laughs> to me, there's nothing quite like a newspaper. And uh, online's good, and it's certainly readily accessible to to anyone who has a computer or a smartphone or whatever. But there's just something about good old-fashioned uh, newspapers that, uh, uh, well, let, let me put it this way. We have a wonderful network of folks who normally distribute the paper for us. You know, we, as I've mentioned before, for 26 years, uh, we've been serving Western and Central Oregon and Southwest Washington. And, uh, in fact, this month is officially our 26th anniversary. We made a little note of that at the top of of the page of our online edition here. Um, and and we, we usually get the paper out to about 1,900 locations. And the folks who do that are just the most wonderful people you'd ever ever mm-hmm. want to meet. They share the, the, the vision for the newspaper and the mission that it serves, and they are just chomping at the bit to get back <laughs> uh, and, and distribute, distribute the thing. I've told them many times that even though I'm the the publisher and, and the edit, editor of the paper, they're the ones that are really important because they're the ones that, that physically get the paper out there. And, and they, they just want so badly to, uh, to get out there and do it again, and I can't wait to be able to, to print. But we, we need to have a significant portion of those 1,900 locations 
reopen in order for that to, to happen. About 85% of our distribution normally is in churches. Uh, the rest are Christian schools, colleges and seminaries, libraries, bookstores, and some businesses. And as you know, 99% of those have been closed. I mean, they're just it's a very gradual reopening taking place right now. Well, congratulations, first of all, on 26 years. That's a significant accomplishment. You know, as I think about the fact that Christian News Northwest relies heavily upon advertising, there are events that take place in our community, uh, and they appear in the paper. As you think about our, our coming gradually back to normalcy or some form of it, what does that look like for Christian News Northwest? And um, are we likely to see this newspaper continue uh, when we are looking back on this uh, this pandemic uh, fondly, <laughs> from a, you know, from a sufficient distance? Well, that's certainly our deep aspiration, our our goal. Um, uh, you know, we're we're like any we're kind of half ministry and half business, and uh, for it to be sustained, we we need to to have the income coming in. And I, I think last time we chatted, I mentioned that that all newspapers, all of them, have been hit very hard with this uh, with this situation. You know, before I started uh, Christian News Northwest back in 1994. I worked for about 18 years for several, quote-unquote, secular newspaper companies in Washington and Oregon. And I never dreamed that I would see the day where those newspapers, either in the, the papers themselves or online, are openly advertising for donations to keep afloat. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's just been that serious. Uh, you know, what is the immediate... Uh, Outlook well. <laughs> I guess it depends on which commentator you you hear talking on the news. You know, there's some some e- economists that that voice optimism that uh, I mean, it's pretty well conceded the second quarter of this year's uh, not not going to be good in terms of the numbers. But uh, some economists will say that there's optimism to think that things will bounce back very strongly in the third quarter and even better in the fourth quarter. And certainly that would be be helpful for for all newspapers, including including ours. Uh, what what it would be especially helpful for us is when churches uh, feel free to to sponsor special events again, um, mm-hmm. because literally hundreds of events have been canceled uh, in, within our circulation area through April. May and, and June, and I was just on the phone today confirming what I expected, and that is some more cancellations of late summer. So uh, what, what we hope and pray is that we do get a return to normalcy with that. Now, as I um, read through Christian News Northwest online, and the June issue is currently available, I noticed there is a GoFundMe page. Can you explain how we can uh, continue to support and help assure the future of Christian News Northwest, the print edition moving forward? Absolutely. Um, If you go to our website, which is simply cnnw.com, right there at the very top, you will see where you can click on a couple of images there of uh, currently of our May and June issues. uh, And you can actually read uh, those online issues there. But right next to that area, is also a mention of a GoFundMe site that we set up when, when this whole pandemic broke out. Uh, small businesses across the country were encouraged, uh, 
it's kind of a joint joint uh, promotion between QuickBooks and GoFundMe to set up uh, GoFundMe sites uh, to uh, accept donations. And that's not anything that, that we had ever contemplated doing, uh, but with the drop in advertising revenue, as serious as it was, uh, I thought, well, maybe we should. And and so I, I checked with our accountant to see if he thought it would be okay, and uh, he said as long as we made clear that and, and newspapers that are accepting donations or doing this all over the place, we're not 501c3 operations under under IRS law. In other words, we can't issue uh, receipts for donation tax tax receipts. Uh, but but people still who who don't mind not getting a tax receipt are more than welcome to uh, to make donations in that GoFundMe site. And if there's a link there on the homepage of our website, cnnw.com, to the GoFundMe page, it's called simply Support Christian News Northwest Newspaper. And it's been very gratifying. We've had, uh, since we started that, we had $3,000 uh, come in through that site. And we had another thousand dollars in checks mailed to us, so it, mm. that's been that's been terrific. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, you can find all the details there at the site where you can uh, read the June issue of Christian News Northwest, and that's simply cnnw.com. Well, John, I um, I so appreciate that you are continuing to produce Christian News Northwest, and I look forward to holding that that printed paper in my hands again. But in the meantime. I just want to encourage all of us to be uh, supportive of Christian uh, newspaper here in our community, and uh, we'll, we'll try to keep in touch, and hopefully things will open up soon. Thank you so much, Georgine. I sure appreciate it. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back, and when we do, we'll talk about the uh, uh, Oregon update on COVID-19. The numbers uh, are issued throughout the day, so we'll give you the latest as of uh, this recording, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. <clears throat> Taking a look at the latest numbers in Oregon, and keep in mind, we broadcast now, we, we record the program earlier, so we're not in real time. So these numbers may have changed since we received the last update. But one Oregon City woman has been battling COVID-19 for two months uh, we're being told she apparently is winning that battle, but it has been a harsh and very difficult challenge for she and her family. In Oregon, the death toll remains at 148. The number of cases, 3,967. That's overall for the two months that we have been sheltering in place and managing this pandemic. In Washington, the death toll, 1,000. 78 and the number of cases 20,181 cases thus far in the United States we stand at about 98,933 that's the latest uh, US numbers from earlier in uh, in the day well as the Oregon City woman I mentioned uh, earlier is on day 54 of her battle with the coronavirus in addition to physical distress she says she's felt depression and anxiety like never before. She found hope and community online, as many of us have, staying connected to one another as technology makes it possible. Well, parents, teachers, and school superintendents will find out in early June how schools are expected to function this fall after months of being closed. Uh, the director of the Oregon Department of Education, Colt Gill, said in an interview that the state expects school buildings to reopen in September. Well, that's good news. Mount Hood National Forest officials said most developed recreation sites will open on Friday. Some sites will remain closed, including most campgrounds and areas 
that are still under seasonal closure. The Oregon Employment Department says it has launched a project aimed at handling the 38,000 claim backlog that has continued to grow during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, that's good news. Meanwhile, two more churches in the state of Oregon are suing Governor Brown over the coronavirus restrictions. They're in southern Oregon, and they filed lawsuit over her uh, executive order banning large gatherings. It's the second lawsuit filed by churches against the governor. Last week, a judge in Baker County ruled the governor's coronavirus restrictions were null and void. But as you recall, the Oregon Supreme Court temporarily reinstated the restrictions until it could review the case. Alliance Defending Freedom filed the new lawsuit on Tuesday in federal court on behalf of Edgewater Christian Fellowship and Grants Pass and Roseburg Church of God Prophecy. The churches, which plan to resume in-person worship services this Sunday, fear their pastors and members could be fined and jailed for violating the governor's executive orders banning large gatherings. The pastor's attorneys argue it's not right for the pastors to be punished for going to church when they can gather with people at a dine-in restaurant and not fear being punished. And while responding to a crisis can be difficult, this crisis is not, says Caleb Dalton, an attorney for Alliance Defending Freedom in a news release. There is no legitimate justification for banning church services of 26 or more with responsible social distancing and health and safety protocols, while allowing malls, gyms, restaurants, and retail establishments to fill uh, to social distancing capacity. The lawsuit also uh, argues that the governor's order violates the U.S. Constitution by prohibiting the free exercise of religion. It actually points to the free uh, uh, freedom to associate, but that's another matter. Meanwhile, California's Department of Health's reopening guidelines for houses of worship contain bitter news for those who love corporate worship, strongly consider discontinuing singing, group recitation, and other um, practices and performances where there is increased likelihood for transmission from contaminated exhaled droplets, the report warns. Um, In another section, it notes activities such as singing and group recitation negate the risk reduction achieved through six feet of physical distancing. Absorbing this is tough news for those who feel most connected to God and others through music. Of course, we can still engage in music wherever we happen to be, but when we're corporately together, they're suggesting that singing and uh, group recitation um, is most uh, guilty of spreading these exhaled droplets that spreads the virus. There's something about the uh, articulating our emotional state and using music, using song as a means of expressing ourselves before the Lord. And that's deep in the Christian tradition from singing and praying the Psalms to the early hymns and the New Testament, like in Luke's gospel and peppered through uh, Paul's letters. Uh, there was also a reputation that early Christians get in Pliny's letter to the emperor. He says these strange Christians get together before sunrise and they sing these hymns to Christ as if to a God. Huh. Well, there's something about the song that helps us express more than just what the words of the song are saying. Uh, that's a quote from Mr. Pacquiam, who is also the author of the forthcoming book, Worship and the World to Come, Exploring Christian Hope in Contemporary Worship. He joined digital media producer Morgan Lee and editorial director Ted Olson to discuss how his church has handled the pandemic from a worship perspective, what makes corporate singing special, and what it means to uh, that eschatology is missing from our worship music. You can find that conversation at Christianity.com um, online, and it's a rather interesting conversation, uh, but it does point to the, the fact that corporate worship that involves singing together 
uh, may have to be curtailed or people may be required to wear a mask or some accommodation may need to be made because that uh, is one way that people are contracting the virus or at least uh, their aspirations, if you will, are um, have greater traction through singing. Hey, Salem Medium Group, as you know, is jumping into the movie business, streaming No Safe Spaces, the documentary about free speech with Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. No Safe Spaces was one of 2019's uh, top political documentaries, and it exposes the toll of political correctness on college campuses. Despite the film's popularity, the filmmakers weren't able to strike a deal with the traditional streamers because of political bias in Washington, so they took it to Salem Media. Salem has never done anything like this. Marketing the first time will show uh, a feature film online. So the message of the film is how free speech intolerance is being blocked by intolerant forces. And you can watch it. Uh, It'll make you laugh, cry, but think deeply as well. No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for limited time only at nosafespaces.com. And for KPDQ listeners, enjoy a 25% discount using the discount code SAVE25. That's nosafespaces.com, discount code Save 25. Well, skyrocketing unemployment due to the coronavirus pandemic has been forcing a growing number of Americans to turn to charitable services for assistance as food insecurity among families with children is growing. Philanthropist and New York Mission Society board member Jean Shafroff mentioned how she's helping her community and raising awareness to help curb the growing numbers of food insecure Americans. The New York City Mission Society has been serving the city's most underserved children since 1812. And recently it's been making food and utility baskets for the children it serves and delivering them during the pandemic. She says, I can't tell you how desperately these food baskets are needed in the New York tri-state area. We have a very serious situation because so many residents live at or below the poverty level. The food pantries across the area are very helpful, but the supply and the demand are not working the way that they should right now. There is massive demand all over the country, 39 million Americans out of work, and this translates into no food on the table. Well, earlier in the week, I received an email from Snowcap, which is an organization in our own community, Oregon's largest provider of food assistance, and they're seeing a 26% increase in people in need, but not a, a commensurate increase in donations. Uh, Snowcap Community Charities remains open. They continue to serve those who need food during COVID-19. And reports show that East Multnomah County in particular has been hit the hardest, with the highest percentage of low-income families in Portland in the metro area. Well, as unemployment continues to rise here due to COVID-19, we're seeing a dramatic increase of families who never imagined they would need to ask for food, turning to Snowcap for assistance and other uh, food pantries around the uh, metro area. As demand grows, uh, they need help. Tax-deductible gifts of non-perishable food and financial contribution will allow Snowcap and other organizations to continue being a reliable source to help those who find themselves making tough decisions for their families. Uh, Pre-COVID-19, Snowcap, singling out one group among many, served an average of 10,000 people a month through their shopping-style food pantry located in Rockwood. In response to COVID-19, they've converted the pantry operations into distribution for pre-packaged boxes of food from a protected walk-up window where people can come and get what they need. Well, among the things that Snowcap says they need most are canned vegetables and fruit, canned soups, chilies, tuna, egg cartons, bags, reusable paper or plastic bags, uh, infant formula uh, is, is on that list. Let me turn this alarm off. Uh, is on that list uh, cloth masks, 
and hygiene items. So as you are making sure that you and your family are well supplied with the things that you need, keep in mind that there are uh, food pantries and charitable organizations in our community that have not stopped their efforts and uh, the needs of those they serve has only increased dramatically while the uh, folks who are supporting their efforts has decreased as uh, dramatically. So uh, keep in mind that there are there's a need and there are opportunities for us to give. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. wanted to mention that Multnomah County has uh, held a press conference earlier in the day. You know, we were recording before that uh, press conference was held, but apparently uh, offered some updated information as to whether or not they're going to apply for phase one of reopening. You might want to check that out. We'll certainly cover it tomorrow in the program. Well, the Justice Department on Wednesday urged the president to veto legislation to reauthorize surveillance authorities used by the FBI just hours before a scheduled vote in the House, marking the latest curveball that puts the legislation in limbo. The Justice Department issued a statement Today, saying the legislation set a re, set to reauthorize and reform national security authorities in the USA Freedom Act goes too far and would weaken national security tools. If passed, the attorney general uh, would recommend that the president veto the legislation. The statement from Assistant Attorney General Stephen Boyd said. Meanwhile, Richard Grinnell has declassified a new batch of Russia probe documents on his way out as acting director of national intelligence, leaving the decision on whether to make those files public up to the newly sworn-in director, John Ratcliffe. The documents include transcripts of phone calls that then-incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and then-Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak had in December of 2016 during the presidential transition period. Grinnell said publicly last week that he was in the process of declassifying those files after House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff asked him to do so. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Wednesday officially declared that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China, days after Beijing moved to impose new national security legislation on the territory. Beijing's disastrous decision is only the latest in a series of actions that fundamentally undermine Hong Kong's autonomy, and and freedoms and China's own promises to the Hong Kong people under the Sino-British Joint Declaration, a U.N.-filed international treaty, Pompeo said in a statement. Chinese government officials citing national security announced that the National People's Congress will review legislation that would criminalize anti-government movements like the recent years-long pro-democracy protests. Pro-democracy advocates say that such a move goes against the one country, two systems framework the promises freedoms to rest, uh, residents of Hong Kong not available to Chinese citizens on the mainland. That was uh, set to expire, but certainly not this soon. Well, in February of 1970, Norma McCorvey, a, pres- a pregnant street person, a 21-year-old woman in big trouble, writes McCorvey in her 1994 memoir, I Am Roe, I became Jane Roe at a corner table at Colombo, uh, Colombo's, an Italian restaurant, at Mockingbird Lane and Greenboro Avenue in Dallas. That short meeting with Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, two lawyers looking for the right case to strike a blow on behalf of abortion rights, transformed McCorvey's life. The following month, Weddington and Coffey filed a lawsuit against Dallas District Attorney Henry Wade for enforcing Texas abortion laws and used McCorvey as their lead plaintiff. The case ended up in the United States Supreme Court, and on January the 22nd, 1973, the justices overturned the law 
7 to 2 to legalize abortion in all 50 states. On that date, Norma McCorby became Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade, part symbol, part person, trapped in a maelstrom of history and the sound and fury of America's abortion wars. When she left the abortion industry for the pro-life movement in 1994, she made headlines across the nation. Now again, McCorvey is making headlines as the bombshell subject of a new FX documentary, which I saw the night before last, a.k.a. Jane Roe, which claims that she changed her mind a second time and reverted back to a pro-abortion position. Producer Nick Sweeney tells a story in which McCorvey's relationship with the pro-life movement was strictly a financial one. In a series of interviews that she um, dubbed her deathbed confession, she calls it all an act. I was the big fish, she says in the documentary. I think it was a mutual thing. I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and tell me what to say. Well, numerous headlines have suggested that McCorvey was paid to change her mind on abortion, despite the fact that those are not actually her words and trying to unearth the real narrative. Um, one writer, uh, Jonathan Van Maren, spoke uh, with many, many of her close friends, three of whom went on the record. Those three, in addition to others, reject the idea that she was bribed into switching sides. Their story of McCorvey and their relationship with her is much more complex, intimate, and humane for this new documentary to quote Norma saying that she was not genuinely pro-life is very suspicious, said Father Frank Pavone, director of Priests for Life. I knew Norma. Her pro-life convictions were not an act. Well, I've seen the movie, and I have to say it was very discouraging to me, not for the pro-life movement in general, but for Norma McCorvey in particular, um, and the life she lived and how she moved uh, and seemed to navigate from one side of the question to the other. And I was concerned about the state of her uh, relationship uh, with uh, the uh, the church and her relationship with Christ. So uh, for me, she's now since passed away. But there was an interesting piece in uh, Christianity Today that goes into great detail among those who knew her in her latter days. And much of the uh, documentary is she is her speaking in her own words. So you can't uh, argue that they completely misconstrued what she was saying. But nonetheless, you may want to check that out. It's a deathbed apology. Norma McCorvey's pro-life friends tell another story. So if you're interested in looking uh, more deeply into uh, uh, that controversy, Jonathan Van Maren is a public speaker, writer, and pro-life activist. His commentaries have appeared in a number of publications, but he writes about the life and legacy of Norma McCorvey and her relationship to the question of abortion on demand in the U.S. Meanwhile, Sue Ellen Browder, who wrote fake news before fake news was ever a thing, except she prefers not to call it that, not because she's embarrassed to admit she wrote fake news, although she's certainly not proud, but because she thinks the term fake news is too vague to understand. According to her own um, confession, she says she wrote fake news for Cosmopolitan and now regrets misleading women on feminism. A cosmopolitan, um, cosmopolitan magazine writer for 20 years, she describes what she wrote as propaganda. The goal, she says, to sell women on the idea that sexual liberation is the path to the single woman's personal fulfillment. Propaganda is very sophisticated, she tells the Daily Signal. It's a half-truth, selected truth, and truth out of context. Propaganda is used not to sell just products, she adds. It's also used to sell ideas. Prior to writing for Cosmopolitan, she worked at a small daily newspaper, the South Bay Daily Breeze, just outside Los Angeles. When she and her husband unexpectedly got pregnant, they were far more excited about it than her bosses at the newspaper were. They told me I could uh, only work five months into the pregnancy and then I had to quit. That experience turned her, 
uh, Browder, born and raised in small town Iowa, into a feminist, about which she wrote for many years. The year was 1969, and getting fired for being pregnant was a wake-up call. The situation made her, uh, who, by the way, graduated from the Missouri School of Journalism, realized that women had uh, quite a bit of work to do. Women could not apply for credit in their own name. They were, uh, ha- there were help-wanted ads, help-wanted male and help-wanted female, she says. Women um, had very uh, few options available to them, but she now, in reflection, uh, says that she wrote propaganda for Cosmopolitan magazine and now regrets the misleading content of that um, that writing over a span of 20 years. You can find that at the dailysignal.com more on this cosmopolitan writer uh, who uh, in um, her book in 2015 subverted how I helped the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement documents uh, the disgust of many pro-life feminists. But from the point that point on, the narrative was set. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. This is the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, during the pre-taping of this program, we just got the latest uh, numbers for the state of Oregon. No new deaths in Oregon, 71 new cases, 41 of which are in Multnomah County, which is rather interesting considering that Multnomah County is going to update the uh, public on uh, reopening plans. In fact, did so in the future from our recording standpoint, but in the past from your listening standpoint, the uh, Multnomah County is the only county remaining in the state of Oregon that has not yet applied to enter phase one of the governor's reopening plan. So it will be interesting uh, to learn what that will look like and whether or not um, Multnomah County leaders are going to move forward in the short term or given these latest numbers, if that's likely to, uh, to be lengthening the time between that request being made. Again, no new deaths in the state of Oregon, 71 cases, however, across the state, 41 of which are in Multnomah County. Well, Americans are pretty highly concerned about the coronavirus, even as parts of the country start to reopen. And while the root cause of these concerns, you know, they come from various sources, polling indicates that a slightly higher percentage of Americans fear the economic effect of a prolonged period of quarantine. And that's not at all surprising at 49 percent, since a significant uh, number of us have been either laid off, furloughed or some other um, way of our income being reduced. Then the health threat posed by the virus at 45 percent, the fact um, remains, Americans are afraid. A certain level of anxiety is understandable. We live in challenging times in which concerns about rising unemployment, access to health care, and the possibility of an economic recession dominate the headlines. Loved ones are losing jobs, small businesses are struggling, churches are having to reevaluate how they do ministry, and of course there are those whose lives are being lost. In this context, fear is a natural human reaction. David Clausen points out that Christians need to think very carefully about the current moment and the important conversations taking place around us. In the weeks ahead, those in authority ought to be guided by the principles of neighbor love and ensure that that all their decisions honor the inherent dignity of everyone made in God's image. Christian doctors, businessmen, policymakers should prayerfully consider how to balance the reopening of the country with protecting the health of those Americans in the country. Well, unfortunately, there are always uh, those who try to exploit a crisis by further stirring up fear. There have already been examples of state and local authorities using the current situation as an opportunity to amass more power to themselves. However, Christians must recognize the dangers of allowing fear to drive the national response. 
We should caution our friends and neighbors about the hazards of an alarmist mentality that could ultimately lead to the government assuming excessive power. Such conditions have historically led to the suspension of civil liberties. The government has a vital role to play in addressing the crisis, to be sure. However, fear-driven people placing all their trust in government is highly dangerous. That's why Christians must be vigilant and ensure they're being guided by faith in the principles of God's word rather than fear. I found it interesting that the CDC just days ago said we've, uh, we're now issuing uh, new guidelines with regard to surfaces. They don't, uh, the virus doesn't uh, linger on surfaces as we had just thought. And then today I read again that they're concerned that the uh, virus on surfaces may linger longer than their earlier directive. So not even science is giving us reliable certainty when it comes to this virus. The Bible frequently addresses the topic of fear. For instance, Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And despite facing many harrowing situations in his personal and public life, David believed that following uh, followers of God should not be ruled by fear. In the 27th Psalm, first verse, he wrote, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Likewise, the Apostle Paul rejected fear, reminding his young ministry partner, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control in 2 Timothy, the first uh, chapter. Remarkably, every genre contained in the Bible, historical narrative, epistle, poetry, and prophecy, features admonitions to not be afraid. Why does the Bible say so much about fear? Well, humanity's natural inclination to fear is a result of living in a fallen world where we are estranged from our Creator. Even Christians who've been reconciled to God through faith in the person and work of Jesus are still affected by sin, and as a result, they don't yet experience full peace and assurance. Unfortunately, we are often consumed with our own struggles and circumstances, and when the concerns of this fallen world press in on us, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. When this happens, even the most faithful Christians are often tempted to act on fear and to seek help in the wrong places. The consistent message of Scripture, however, is a reminder of God's, to God's people that no matter how difficult our trials become, we must keep our eyes fixed on God. We must trust Him to work even difficult situations for His glory and our good. Notably, when God tells his people not to fear, he usually provides a reason why they shouldn't be fearful. Namely, he reminds us, he reminds them of his presence. For example, immediately after instructing Joshua not to be dismayed, he adds, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. It's important for us to remember, like Elisha's servant, who often needed to be reminded that no matter how dire the situation appears to be, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Second Kings, sixth chapter. In the coming weeks, Christians have an incredible opportunity to model what sincere trust in God looks like. And although Christians are facing the same challenges as everyone else, we can have peace and confidence that surpasses all understanding if we stay rooted in the character and the promises of God. And hopefully when we look back on these times in the months and years to come, we'll be able to see God's good hand of providence and how these difficult days produced opportunities for gospel advancement that would have been impossible any other way. So let's choose faith over fear and trust God to preserve and keep us as we lean on him in these very difficult and trying days. As the governor, as county officials and others are grappling with what 
rules to keep in place, which ones to lift and how to move back in toward normalcy, although it will be a new normal that we settle on, at least in the near term. Let's pray for those uh, governing authorities that they would act in wisdom and have discernment, uh, that they would not act out of self-interest, but they would do what is right based on what they know and what they don't know, that they would recognize their need for a higher authority and perhaps press into seeking wisdom from above. What a tremendous opportunity we have been given as we shelter in God. And that's what I hope all of us are doing in these challenging days. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with some friends at Child Evangelism Fellowship. They have some resources available to families to help them them navigate these difficult times. So I hope you'll join us for that. I also want to thank James Blend for uh, producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office for today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.